episode 43, The Truth About the Federalist Papers, Part 1. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on Twitter or Facebook on the topics of Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, or the gender pay gap, or minimum wage, or abortion, or climate change ever come up, please share the specific topic TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. If you're listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down to the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at TruthQuest Podcast patronage page. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com. The easiest way to stay up to date on the podcast is to subscribe to it on iTunes or Google Play Music. It's also available on YouTube, Stitcher, Podbean, and Spotify. Finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. After the Constitution was written, it needed to be ratified by the individual states. New York was what we would call a swing state. Many of the New York representatives at the Constitutional Convention were apprehensive about granting power to the federal government, as were many of their constituents back home. Alexander Hamilton, who eventually served as President Washington's Secretary of Treasury, devised a plan to write and publish a series of essays explaining the Constitution and answering questions of skeptics. He recruited James Madison, the future president and the father of the Constitution, and John Jay, a future Supreme Court justice, to help write the essays. They became known as the Federalist Papers. In total, there were 85 essays. They published them anonymously under the pen name Publius. John Jay got sick shortly after they started writing and publishing the essays, which forced Hamilton and Madison to take on a pretty heavy writing load. Hamilton wrote 51, Madison wrote 29, and Jay wrote 5. The articles were printed in New York newspapers between October 1787 through August 1788. They are the user's manual for the most important political document ever written, the United States Constitution and therefore deserve at least a perfunctory understanding. Short of reading the the debates from the Constitutional Convention and the state ratification debates, the Federalist Papers provide some of the best insights into the United States Constitution, so much so that they are the most often cited source for Supreme Court decisions. It's important to remember that when the state delegates were sent to Philadelphia for the Constitutional Convention, they were sent there to amend the Articles of Confederation. It had proved to be ineffective. They needed to create some form of a central government. By the time the delegates finished their work, they had an entirely new document. Not everyone was convinced, especially the people of New York, therefore the need for these essays. There are four general themes in the 85 essays. Number one, the weakness of the Articles of Confederation. Number two, the nature of the proposed government, its power, its relationship with the states. Number three, the dangers of disunion and the advantages of a stronger union. And finally, number four, the protections it provides against dangerous use of power. I have broken the essays down into three episodes. The first one, which you are listening to now, will cover the basics, the nuts and bolts, so to speak. The Articles of Confederation, the arguments for a stronger centralized government, and the systems of checks and balances devised by the Constitution. The next episode will cover the executive and legislative branches, followed by an episode that covers everything else, the judiciary, taxation, states' rights, and a few important miscellaneous musings. As you will find out as we walk through the essays, the authors were often naive in their arguments and or unable to anticipate the sinister nature of a certain sector of the American populace that is determined to tear down the Constitution clause by clause. 
My intention was for these episodes to serve as a primer on the Federalist Papers. Their importance to American history is indisputable, so I had planned on simply presenting a summary of them. Most people will never read them because they are not easy to read or understand because they are written in this old-style English prose. What struck me most as I went through them, however, was the extent to which our constitutional system has been bastardized and torn down. So I'm combining the two. I'm walking you through the message of the essays while pointing out how we have strayed from the original intent of the Constitution and the damage that has been done to our republic. I think both messages are important for modern-day Americans. I hope you enjoy. So let's dive in. Let's start with the nuts and bolts, the need to replace the Articles of Confederation and the arguments for a stronger centralized government, along with some discussion about the checks and balances devised by the Constitution. I'm actually going to begin at the end, Federalist 85, the last essay where Hamilton makes what, in my mind, is the most important point of all the essays. He explains that people are imperfect, as is the Constitution, but through debate, the delegates came up with the best document man could possibly devise. It's an important message for us to consider. It ain't perfect, no one claims it is, but it is amendable, as we will discuss later. So, back to the beginning. In Federalist 1 and 2, Hamilton and Jay start by explaining the reason for the government and America's unique dependence on God. These essays, number one was written by Hamilton, the second one by John Jay, point out that America is special because our rights come from God. But those rights must be protected by a central government that serves the people. And we are reminded that divine providence brought the country to this point. But America's future prosperity is dependent on a union. They make an overarching argument that the single federal government is better than a bunch of separate confederacies. So right out of the gate, we are provided with the primary reason a central government needs to be created. Never forget this message, whether it be at the federal government level or state or local levels. Their primary purpose is to protect us, period. End of story. The bastardization of the Constitution is clear right out of the gate with the first essay. Our central government, most recently, seems to be interested in tearing down religious freedom, getting us involved in unnecessary and unconstitutional wars, doling out welfare benefits, interfering with the economy, imposing limitations on us, getting involved in our children's education, and overall just getting involved in areas that they have no power rather than focusing on their number one responsibility, which is to protect us. Much more on this as we proceed. When it comes to God's involvement in the success of America, clearly our federal government is in general, but the Democratic Party specifically has for many decades worked to remove God from the public square. The modern politics of divisiveness is the favorite tool of a large sector of our power brokers. We are divided by our race, immigration status, rich versus poor, Christians versus everyone else. I mean, intersectionality rules the day, all of which is counter to the Judeo-Christian tradition that brought America to greatness. Listen to episode 26 for more on that. So we essentially have evolved from one nation under God into a bunch of perceived aggrieved factions, most of which forbid you to mention God. The idea of factions comes up later in this episode. So in the next series of essays, Jay and Hamilton tackle a number of issues including the weakness of the Articles of Confederation, the benefits of forming a union, and finally a defense of forming a republic. So let's look at these individually, the weaknesses of the Articles of Confederation. In the seventh essay, Hamilton explicitly refers to the problems that arose because of weaknesses in the Articles of Confederation, including these points, quote, the competitions of commerce would be another fruitful source of contention, end quote. 
Here's another quote. Each state or separate confederacy would pursue a system of commercial polity particular to itself, end quote. And then he poses a series of questions asking how would the public debt be handled without a change to the articles, given that the newly formed centralized government has to be given some power to tax the individual states, something that was lacking from the articles. So he is basically laying the groundwork for future essays that make the argument that having one centralized federal government will smooth out a lot of disjointed, selfish interests of the 13 separate states. In the 15th essay, Hamilton reiterates the issue of debt owed to foreign nations from fighting the war and points out a couple of other insufficiencies in the articles, including the fact that the foreign powers are in possession of posts not surrendered, causing a lack of respectability in foreign eyes. This is a situation that presumably the new federal government could rectify. In Federalist 22, Hamilton piles on with more concerns about the defects in the Articles of Confederation including the lack of control of commerce between the states, the inability to raise an army, the problems with equal voting power by large and small states, the ability of a minority to prevent government action, lack of a national Supreme Court, and the need for a single government body. In Federalist 37, James Madison reminds the reader that it was not easy forming the Constitution. He explained that the work of the Convention was difficult and required a lot of compromise, but unity means finding common ground and putting the interests of the Union, not one small group or political party first. So this idea of common ground, it sure doesn't sound like modern-day America, where liberals and national Democrats would rather demonize their political opponents than negotiate. I mean, think about Obamacare. No Republicans voted for it because there was no debate allowed. What about climate change is settled science? There's no debate allowed. What about abortion and education and health care, our rights, and anyone who disagrees are anti-women, anti-children, they hate mankind, there's no debate allowed. On a related side note, when your rhetorical opponent refuses to debate the merits of their argument, you can claim victory. Doesn't sound like common ground to me. In Federalist 38, Madison defended the proposed Constitution, arguing that no one has offered a better alternative with fewer objections than the constitutional form of government. And he reminds the reader of a sense of urgency to get this thing done. In Federalist 40, Madison addresses the question of whether the convention was authorized to frame and propose this new constitution, or was it just authorized to amend the Articles of Confederation. This is something many opponents of the constitution felt strongly about. He summarizes the work of the constitution as follows, quote, If they had exceeded their powers, they were not only warranted, but required as the confidential servants of their country by the circumstances in which they were placed to exercise the liberty which they assumed, end quote. He essentially argues that if they violated the power and the obligations with which they were entrusted, the Constitution should still be approved for the, for the benefit of the American people. So let's turn our attention to the benefits of forming a union. In Federalist 3 and 4, John Jay argues that we are less likely to go to war with one centralized government as opposed to 13 separate colonies. His basic argument is we would have less people getting pissed off and fighting if the power for the military and the militias is under the Fed's control. In Federalist 5, Jay explains how it is much better to have a united country than several confederacies when it comes to foreign policy, one military, one trade policy, etc. In the 10th and 14th essays, Madison makes the case for a republic by explaining how the Union will act as a safeguard against domestic divisions and rebellions. He explains how the Constitution will prevent factions from taking hold. He explains, quote, 
By a faction, I understand a number of citizens, whether amounting to a majority or a minority of the whole, who are united and actuated by some common impulse or passion or in, of interest adverse to the rights of other citizens or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community. End quote. See what I mean by old English prose? It's very difficult to understand. He goes on to argue that enlightened statesmen will not always be at the helm. Amen to that. And since we cannot eliminate the causes of faction, divisions among groups, the Constitution was used to control its effects, that is, the, the effects of factions. Whereas a pure democracy always devolves into factions and tyranny of the majority. So the idea of electing re representatives or agents in a republic as opposed to a majority rule wins in a democracy is that everything gets run through this filter of the elected representative and hopefully any hasty decisions or evil intentions are tapped down. In a nutshell, republics are more capable of controlling the effects of faction than a democracy. One of the benefits of the Union, according to Hamilton and Federalist 11, is a strong navy and how that will provide safety and prosperity. He argues that the American economic prosperity depends on the Union's ability to trade domestically and internationally and to defend itself with a strong navy. He poses this question, basically saying, hey, are 13 navies better than one centralized navy? He also makes the argument that tr negotiating trade deals with other countries as one united nation would be easier than 13 separate disunited ones. He goes on to argue that we must be able to project power and the ability to defend ourselves. Quote, let the 13 states bound together as one in a strong and indestructible union. End quote. In Federalist 13, Hamilton reminds the reader of the efficiencies that the union will bring to the government employment picture with one set of government employees rather than multiple confederacies with their own. Quote, if the states are united under one government, there will be but one national civil list to support. If they are divided into several confederacies, there will be as many different national civil lists to be provided for. End quote. In Federalist 39, Madison reiterates that the government created by the Constitution is a republic, not a democracy. We mentioned this earlier, and makes the point that is lost on modern-day Americans. The government derives its power directly from the people, not merely the elite. I make this point in Episode 3, The Truth About the Constitution. Federal government was created by the states, the people. In theory, it has no power other than those few enumerated by Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. And in a preview of the next episode... Madison walks through the particulars of how the House members are elected directly by the people versus the Senate by the state legislatures and the President indirectly through representatives of the people, the Electoral College. He then turns to the Supreme Court and argues that they will act as objective arbiters to the rules of the Constitution whenever a controversy arrives, which is laughable when you think about the current Supreme Court. If you're interested in that, listen to episode 16, The Truth About the Supreme Court. Madison goes on to reaffirm the idea that each state that ratifies the Constitution is a sovereign, independent power that is voluntarily joining the Union of States. So from this, we see more of a defense of forming a republic. As you may recall, there is a story of a brief exchange between Ben Franklin and a woman from Philadelphia one evening after concluding another session at the Constitutional Convention. It goes something like this, Well, doctor, what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? And Franklin responded, a republic, if you can keep it. 
So given that backdrop, you can imagine that the Federalist Paper writers needed to spend a considerable amount of time explaining the virtues of a republic to their audience. Their message is especially valuable to modern Americans as the left continues to push for more and more of a pure democracy, where majority rules, or better put, the mob rules, as opposed to the more deliberative and thoughtful nature associated with the republic. In Federalist VI, Hamilton begins the defense of forming a republic, arguing that the genius of republics lies in its ability to foster a spirit of commerce, which has a tendency to soften the manners of men and to extinguish those inflammable humors which have so often kindled into wars. In Federalist IX, Hamilton continues his defense of the republican form of government devised by the Constitution. In this essay, Hamilton tries to defend the Constitution against two of the anti-federalists' strongest arguments. Number one, that a republican form of government cannot succeed in a nation as large as America. And number two, the Constitution will ultimately lead to the consolidation of power at the federal level and crush states' rights and sovereignty. He argued that despite the history of republics being overcome by insurrection, this one will be different given its strong union of states. He explains that there are built-in mechanisms in the Constitution to further strengthen the union. He said the, quote, excellencies of republican government may be retained and its imperfections lessened or avoided, end quote, through the distribution of power into distinct departments, legislative checks and balances, courts composed of judges holding office during good behavior, and the electoral college. Unfortunately for us living today, when the Republicans dominate Congress, they sit on their hands and do next to nothing to fulfill their promises to cut spending and reduce regulations and bureaucracies. Meanwhile, when the Democrats dominate Congress in the White House, they pass radical, largely unpopular and unconstitutional laws like Obamacare. In regards to judges holding office only during good behavior, that's a joke today with modern liberal judges regularly legislating from the bench with no repercussions. And of course, we have the Democratic Party pushing for the elimination of the Electoral College. Listen to episode 34 for more on that. As we will discuss in the next episode, the appointment of senators by the state legislatures, a huge states' rights provision of the Constitution, was eliminated by the progressives via the 17th Amendment. I mean, it's just one thing after another with these folks, decade after decade. That's why they are called progressives, because they progressively institute their policy prescriptions until the point where you surrender. It's like the World War II German bombing campaign of London. It's just relentless. In Federalists 18, 19, and 20, Madison provides a history lesson on the failings of confederacies and federations, going back to antiquity and fast-forwarding to present-day Germanic mode of government. He concludes this discussion in the 20th essay with a condemnation of the United Netherlands, a confederation of aristocracies. The final area we will cover in this episode is what I call the nuts and bolts essays. They revolve around limited government. Other than a straight essay written by Hamilton, number 23, where he makes the case, the bulk of the work comes by the pen of Madison in papers 41 through 44. In essay 23, Hamilton points out that the federal government should do only a few things, but it must have the power and force to do those things well. The founders strictly limited the federal government's power to four primary purposes. Number one, national security. Number two, protection from domestic disturbances. Number three, regulation of commerce and number four, diplomatic relations. Everything else is left to the states. They are independent and able to care for themselves. All this is in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, or you can listen to Episode 3 of this podcast. In Federalists 41 through 44, we really dive into the discussion about limited nature of the federal government, as well as the amendment process. 
In Federalist 41, Madison explains that the powers being conferred to the national government are necessary, but many precautions have been taken to ensure that these powers are never abused. This was obviously a big concern, for good reason, by the people of the states. Madison spends a lot of time explaining why the United States Army is more efficient and less expensive and is better show of force than each state maintaining their own. In Essay 42, he continues his line of thinking, explaining how imperative it is that the world see us and treat us as one nation. That is why the federal government must be empowered to regulate international trade and make treaties with foreign nations with one voice. He goes on in detail about regulating relationships with foreign nations, with treaties, ambassadors, punishing piracy and other felonies on the high seas, regulating commerce between foreign nations, including prohibition of importing slaves after the year 1808. He talks about the power to coin money and punish counterfeiters and fix the standard of weights and measures, the uniform rule of naturalization, and uniform laws of bankruptcy, establishing post office and post roads. And finally, he discusses the ability of the federal government to regulate commerce among the states, that was necessary in order to avoid tariffs and tax wars among the states. In Federalist 43, he discusses why the federal government has been granted the power to deal with copyrights and patents. He talks about treason and debt. He discusses the amendment process, how it ensures that the Constitution cannot be changed too easily while allowing faults and errors to be rectified. He again discusses the two methods of amending the Constitution, which we'll, we'll get to here shortly. While we're on the topic, I want to reach back out to Federalist 85, which was quoted in the opening of this episode. It was written by Hamilton as he concluded the publishing of all the essays. He spent a considerable amount of time explaining to those who opposed the Constitution on the grounds that there was no Bill of Rights. If you're interested in that, listen to episode 37. He explains that amending the Constitution will not be as difficult as, as skeptics think because they will be single-issue amendments. He explains the two methods of offering amendments, from Congress or via Article 5, where the states force the process. The latter, he explains, is another built-in check and balance that should be welcomed by skeptics. The states check on federal overreach. And finally, back to Federalist 44 by Madison. In order to assuage the anti-federalists who were suspicious of centralized power and giving up states' rights, this essay goes through each power individually and explains why it is necessary at the federal level. For example, the states cannot coin money because we can't have a nation of multiple currencies. He goes on to explain that the executive and judicial branches, along with the states, are there to stop Congress if they pass an unconstitutional law. He explains how the appointment of senators by the state legislatures will be another check against federal power. More on that later. So in this episode, I introduced or reintroduced you to the Federalist Papers, though we covered, I, don't, I think, 25 or 26 essays covering the writer's discussion on the needs to replace the Articles of Confederation, the arguments for a stronger centralized government, and some about the systems of checks and balances. In the next episode, we're going to tackle what the Constitution says in regards to the Congress and the President, and of course, how it's been perverted over the last two centuries. Please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. 